My name is Nate Irwin, and it's my privilege to fill in for Pastor Mark while they're on vacation. So would you join me again in prayer? Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. Father, we come to you today, these simple ones. We need your wisdom. We need your perspective on life and the few days that you've given us on earth. And we ask now that through your word and in the power of your Holy Spirit, you would grant us that wisdom. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Well, what questions run through your soul? Now, for many of you this morning, I think there's probably only one question on your mind, and that is, where is my sermon manuscript? You're going through withdrawal. Well, we're going to do something a little different today. We're going to give you a chance to take notes on the sermon. And then the full manuscript will be available online starting tomorrow morning so that if you miss some things or some references and there will even be some additional material in there that we won't get to this morning, you can go and look at that. But I ask you again, what questions run through the river of your soul? Most of us, I suspect, most of the time are too busy in the rat race of life to think much about the rat race. And what happens is we get up in the morning and we shower and we eat breakfast and we go to work and we come home and eat supper and pay the bills and go to bed and we wake up the next morning and the cycle goes on and on. And if we have any spare time, we try to carve out a little recreation for ourselves and our family. But then Monday morning hits again and we're back in the rat race again. But then sometimes something happens. A child gets sick. A friend comes down with cancer. A relationship is broken, and suddenly the merry-go-round of life starts to slow down, and you begin to ruminate. You begin to think about deep questions, like the ones we've been considering this summer in our series on the Psalms, Honest to God. Questions like, God, why do you hide yourself? Or like we looked at last week, God, why have you forsaken me? This is why we love the Psalms, isn't it? Because they're written out of real life experiences and they express emotions that we're feeling but in words that we're not able to express and not even sure if we're allowed to. And yet the issues that David raises in Psalm 39, I suspect are issues that have not troubled very many of us up until now. And yet they should. Let's take a look at Psalm 39. It begins in the Hebrew with the heading to the choir master to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. This was a psalm written for Eric Anderson. Jeduthun was the worship leader, a choir master appointed by David. And this was one of the songs that Israel sang in their corporate worship. And I find that interesting because this isn't a song I would have selected for worship. There's hardly any worship at all in it. And yet it's interesting to me that Israel together poured out their souls in what I could imagine would be a rather melancholy tune with maybe some minor chords here and there as they expressed the anguish of their heart. 
Point number one, the anguish restrained, verses one to three. Something is bothering David, and he calls it in verse two, my distress, or in the NASB, my sorrow, in the NIV, my anguish. And the word literally means pain, either physical or mental. It's used, for instance, in Ezekiel 28:14, of painful briars and sharp thorns. You see, something was hurting David deeply inside, and it felt like sharp thorns were clawing at his soul. And yet the first thing that David says in verse 1 is, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. David wants to be careful how and where he verbalizes his inner struggle. Because the feelings were running so high in his soul that if he vented them in the wrong company, they might be misconstrued. So David takes a promise to not speak as long as he was in the company of the wicked, those people who might be predisposed to think negatively about God. And it raises the question, well, can't we then let God know how we're feeling? I thought that's what the purpose of this series was. Well, we can because God can handle our emotional outbursts, but others sometimes can't. And there is a place for us to hold our tongues. But David could only hold his tongue so long. Look at verse 2. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. We're going to have a kid's moment here. We're going to do this a few times this morning because we're really glad that you kids are here. If you're over 18, you can't listen to this next part. But I want to tell you what's happening in these first three verses. It's like David had eaten a big spicy meal. And he had inside of his stomach all this stuff that was just gurgling and it was burning and it was churning. And then do you know what finally happens when that goes on so long? You, you can't keep it in anymore and it erupts. Now, I'm glad you're here, kids, because we can't talk about stuff like this in church if you're not here. But I know you boys especially will be interested in that. (laughs) But that's exactly what David says. I thought about this stuff, and it was like my stomach was all upset, and then finally ah, it all came out. But notice, when it does come out, David is very careful how he describes his anguish. Because he doesn't want to lead anybody astray, nor does he want to bring bad thoughts to the name of his God. There is a difference between complaining to God and complaining against him. Secondly, the anguish explained, verses 4 to 11. What was bothering David so much? As I looked at this psalm in preparation, that was a hard question for me to sort out. Because the points that I see David raising in this psalm don't typically give us that much angst in our soul. And I wondered why he was so bothered. His struggle was a little bit like Job's struggle, but it's not as deep and profound. It's on a different level. And there are three themes that David intertwines in these verses as he explains his anguish to us. The first theme is that life is so fragile. Verses 4 to 6a. Look at verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end. And literally in the Hebrew that says, make me know when I will cease. David is talking here about his death. 
And yet he's not asking God to tell me how many more days I have to live. Rather, he's asking God to show him how small and insignificant he is in the light of eternity. It says again, if we were to read the Hebrew literally, let me know how lacking I am. My life is as non-existence before you. He says to God, I want to see myself from your perspective, from an eternal point of view, to understand really what this piece of dust that makes me up is worth. Look at the words and the images David uses to describe his life. Verse 4, let me know how fleeting I am. Verse 5, you have made my days a few hand breadths, three inches. David's life was so short that he couldn't even measure it in feet and yards. He could only measure it in inches. Verse 5b, my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And then verse 6, surely a man goes about as a shadow. The word at the end of verse 5 that he uses is a very important word for us to understand. It's the Hebrew word hebel. And it's the same one that his son Solomon chose as the theme of his book on the meaning of life, Ecclesiastes. A word that is used 73 times in that book and that is translated vanity, meaninglessness, vapor, or emptiness. It's a word, according to Barnes, that literally means breath or light wind. And it denotes what passes away more or less quickly and completely. What leaves either no result or no adequate result behind. And therefore, what fails to satisfy the mind of man which craves something permanent and significant. What David's point is, is simply this. Our lives are so short, and nothing we do lasts very long. It's washed away like footprints in the sand, where after the tide has come in and gone out, you didn't even know anybody was even there. It's like the farmhouse that used to stand over here just across Township Line Road. You remember that old house there, if you drive that way to church? A few weeks ago, a wrecking ball came and knocked that house down. And literally within two days, it was gone. And then they cleared away the rubble and they planted grass and that grass grew up. And literally within a few weeks, you could never tell that that house had ever even been there. And David says, God, that is what my life is like. Help me to understand and get that in my soul. We're just here for a flash and then we're gone. We don't often think this way, do we? In fact, life sometimes seems interminably long. Like when we're waiting to get through the four-way stop down here after church. (laughs) Or if you're in school and have a paper or a test coming up. Or maybe you're having struggles with your boss and you can't quit your job and you see no way out of it. Or maybe you've got teenagers that are stretching their wings and bumping into you and you're not sure they'll ever turn into normal human beings. Or maybe you're going through chemo and the journey is so long and you just want to go home and life seems like it's going to go on forever. Well, either way, whether we're caught up in a rat race, a merry-go-round that we can't get off, or if life feels like a marathon, what we need to do is for a moment extricate ourselves from our lives and look back on it like an astronaut looks back on the earth. We have to get outside of this atmosphere around us and pull back. And then we get God's perspective on our life. And that's what David is asking here in Psalm 39. God, show me how small and how short and how fragile 
my life is. It's said that Joseph of Arimathea had his tomb in the garden so that when he went to the garden to enjoy its beauty, he would remember his own short life. And that's what David is asking God to help him do. Lest we get too caught up in the illusion of our own significance, Scripture is full of references to how short and ephemeral our lives really are. Let me just show you a few of them. Our lives are a shadow. Our lives are like houses of clay. They're like a weaver's shuttle, back and forth and gone before you know it. They're like a runner that zips by and then you see it no more. They're like the beasts of the earth that perish. Our lives are like a passing breeze. You feel it and then it's gone. They're like a dream that is there for a little while and then we're swept away. Our lives are soon gone and then we fly away. Our lives are like breath, like a passing shadow. Our lives are like dust. They're like leaves that are here one day and gone the next. They're like a wildflower that flowers in the morning and by noon it's completely withered. They're like mist that you can't even grab and it's gone. Or like the grass of the field. Do you get the picture? God through David is trying to get us to think for a little bit. To understand how short our lives are. And that is why after both verse 5 and verse 11, when he calls us a breath, a hebel, meaningless nothingness is what that means, the little word selah is there. Now that's a musical interlude or a pause where we're supposed to stop and think about what he's just told us. And we don't do selahs very often because we're so busy these days. But Eric had us do a little selah in worship today, and that was great. And I want to help you now at the end of this first point to do a little selah, to think about what we're talking about. And I've got a couple things to help you think about that. Here is one picture of our lives. We're like a match. It starts with a burst of flame. It looks bright and light and warm. But then what happens? In about 10 seconds, it's gone. And where did that smoke go? That's our lives. They're here. They make a little flash. Then they disappear. They're gone. That's what David wants us to understand. Now, what does that look like for human beings? Well, let me give you a quick rundown of an individual's life that could be yours. Take a look at this series of pictures of the same person growing older, in school, maybe graduating, maybe getting his first job. Now he's married and with a family, perhaps. Now he's a senior veteran and now he's getting ready to retire. And do you know what the next picture is in the sequence? It's this. Because that's where we're all going. Now, how long did that take to run by? 10, 15 seconds? A weaver's shuttle, boom, boom, and we're gone. It's like Shakespeare said, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Now, the bard got it partly right. And that is the first point of this message, that life is so fragile. 
But Shakespeare did not have the whole picture. Because as insignificant as we are compared to God, we are still made in His image and we still crave significance. We're different than everything else that God has made. Now let's have another kid's moment. Some of you kids may remember that we have a dog at our house. Anybody remember his name? Stubby. Stubby's our dog. And when we leave in the morning and we come back, let's say, at 6 o'clock after work, what's been on Stubby's mind all day? Is he sitting there thinking about, how am I investing this time? Am I doing something worthwhile? No, Stubby's sound asleep all day long because he's an animal. And all he cares about when we get home is two things. One, he wants to welcome us and tell us how much he loves us. And two, he wonders when dinner's coming. That's the difference between animals and man. He is not in any quandary. He has no angst about the worthlessness of his life. But David, as he thinks about it, does. Because he says, I know that I was made for something more than just to live and die and disappear like a puff of smoke. And he's troubled in his soul and he pours out his heart to God. We are made to do something that will last. And what might that be? The second part of David's anguish is that money is so fleeting. Verses 6b and 11b. What does the world say about money? Oscar Wilde put it this way. When I was young, I thought that money was the most important thing in life. Now that I'm old, I know that it is. And we can resonate with that because we're humans. But the scripture has a completely different perspective on money. What does David say? Verse 6, surely a man goes about as a shadow, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Listen to that verse in the NIV. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. Again, that Hebrew word hebel, meaninglessness, nothingness. He heaps up wealth not knowing who will get it. Now this is a remarkable picture here. It's ridiculous, really. And it's Kind of like Friday morning. Did you wake up Friday morning and look out and see that wonderful mist that was all around? Now, now picture this just for a minute in your mind. You open your curtains in your back window and you look in your backyard and there is this fog all around. Now imagine that there were phantoms wandering around your backyard. They are hustling and bustling about. They are going to and fro. They're bumping into each other and running over each other as they try to gather this mist and stick it into plastic bags. What a ridiculous picture that is. They're working so hard, but they themselves are nothing. And what they're collecting is nothing either. And at the end of the day, they're going to have nothing in their hands. And that's what David says we, we bustle about, we go to and fro, we, we're busy, we think we're important, but all we're doing is gathering mist in our plastic bags. And it's going to disappear and be gone. Our money is so fleeting. Even if we do manage to heap up some stuff that we think has some substance, David says we don't even know who's going to get it when we die. And so what is the use of it? And as he thought about that, and all the things that he had heaped up, and realized that they were going to disappear or be given to someone else. He had anguish in his soul. 
It's like Jesus told the story of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. Of this farmer who had a bumper crop. He didn't know where to store all the crops. So he said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And isn't that the human soul and heart? We always want bigger and better and more. And so he did that. And then he said, after he had built his bigger barn, soul, take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry because you've laid up enough for many years. And do you know what God said to that man? He said, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you've worked so hard to earn? You see, money is like water. You can't hold it in your hands. It slips right through. It's like Proverbs 23, 5 says, Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. It is like Edmund Burke said, What shadows we are and what shadows do we pursue? Look ahead in verse 11. B, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Or in the NIV, you consume their wealth like a moth. Another kid's moment. Do you know what moths are? Do you know what they do? Have you ever been to grandma's or maybe great grandma's house and gone into her bedroom and gone into her closet and smelled this weird smell? Anybody been there? Yeah, moth balls are put in clothing to keep the moth larvae from eating the cloth. Because what cloth moths do is they lay their eggs inside of clothing and the larvae literally feed on cotton and wool and the things that our clothes are made out of. So the moth larvae, if they get laid in the, the, the cupboard or the dresser or the closet, will eat the clothes and consume them, the same word that David used here, and make them totally worthless. They will destroy them. And the picture David wants us to get is this. We lay down a, a layer of wealth. We accumulate something. And right alongside, the moths come and lay their larvae. And then we lay down another layer and we think we're getting somewhere. But with every layer, the moths come along and lay their eggs. And everything we build up, no matter how high it is, is going to be consumed by moths. It's going to be eaten up. Our money is so fleeting. Beauty, as Spurgeon said, must be a poor thing if a moth can consume it. You see, our lives are fragile. Our money is fleeting. And we're too short of time and guarantees to busy ourselves with piling up stuff. The boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth e'er gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour, the paths of glory lead but to the grave. Thomas Gray, capturing the message of Psalm 39. Our lives, our money, are here for a moment, and then they're gone with nothing lasting. The third strand in David's anguish is the fact that sin is so foolish. Verses 7 to 11. And I think this is what is really aggravating David's soul, what is clawing at the inside of him. It's something more personal than the first two points. In verse 7, he begins to make a turning point in the psalm. And now, O Lord, what do I, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. He says, in view of this futility of my life and my stuff, I only have one prospect, one hope, and that is that I could become connected to you. Because God is the only thing that is eternal, that is lasting, that never changes. 
And David says, I need to take my hope from all my stuff and I need to put it in you because you are going to be there forever. And that is the answer to the problem of why of what we do when we realize that life is so fragile and money is so fleeting is we need to have a personal relationship with our creator who made us and rules over it all. And as we enter into that relationship, our lives suddenly take on new meaning. But this very relationship is what has created the dilemma for David. Because this being is not simply a force out there. He's a person. And he has a moral core to him. And here's the rub. David has not always followed the rules. You see what he says in verse 8. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. David has disobeyed the laws of his eternal permanent creator. And that has created a problem for him. That problem is that God cared enough about him to do something about it. And what did God do? Look at verse 9. He says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth for it is you who have done it. He realizes that what he is going through now did not happen by chance, but it was directly from the hand of God. And what was it? Verse 11, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. The word there for rebukes, the word for stroke in verse 10 is a very strong word in Hebrew. This does not refer to a love tap. It's not a little suggestion by God. It's a word that he had used in Psalm 38:11 for wounds. The same word used in 2 Samuel 7:14 for flogging. And actually in some translations it's rendered plagues because it's the same word used in Exodus 11:1 for the plagues that God visited upon Egypt. And what this word means is that God will use physical or emotional means to bring us pain to get through to us. And that's what he had done with David. David says, your blows have landed heavily on me. You've consumed everything that I've accumulated in life. I am spent. I am at the end of my tether. He says, I can't take it anymore. He says to God, no moss. I've had enough of your discipline. Now, because he knew that the distress was God's doing, he says in verse 9, I am mute. I do not open my mouth. He knew better than to argue with God, lest his sin be increased by foolish accusations. He realized his place. He understood that God could have cast him upon a bed of flames instead of a bed of sickness for his sin. But he understood that God was trying to do something in his heart through that discipline. He didn't fully understand that picture because he doesn't arrive at a place of hope in this psalm. But his son Solomon understood it a little further And he described in Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 what the author of Hebrews describes more fully in chapter 12, verses 5 to 11. And in a nutshell, what the book of Hebrews says to do is when you feel the sting of the whip of God, be encouraged. That that is the time that you know you're a child of God. If you weren't his child, he wouldn't care about you. He would just let you wander off the cliff. You see, the wages of sin is death. And so when we choose to go that way, we're headed towards destruction. And God will not let his children continue down that path. 
And so he brings out the whip. He takes off the belt. He gets out the paddle or whatever you use in your family. And he administers pain until we understand in our minds and in our souls that that is not a good path to go down. And that's why we understand that God does it in love. And why even though the pain hurts at the time, as it says in Hebrews, we receive it and we accept it because in the end, it will produce for those who have been trained by it a harvest of righteousness and peace. And that's what God wants for us in the first place and what we want for ourselves. So what is the solution to our sin that is so foolish? Verse 8, to cry out to God, deliver me from all my transgressions. God loves to do that. He is a redeeming God. Listen to this verse from Micah 7:18. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. God can deliver us from all of our sins by forgiving us and by giving us victory over those sins to walk the Christian life as we should. And how does He do that? It is through Christ, as we sang about this morning. It is through Christ who became sin for us who believe that we who believe might in Him become the righteousness of God. Christ has taken all that upon Himself. And He has paid the price. And He has delivered us from our transgressions. Praise His name. And if you're here today caught in sin, you need to think about how foolish that path is. For those of you who are not a child of God, that is leading you straight towards death. And I would encourage you this morning to respond in faith to His invitation to become His child and have your sins forgiven. But for those of us who are His children, sin is foolish because it leads us straight into discipline, into pain, stuff that's going to hurt. And so why would we ever think of doing it in the first place? You see, when we sin against God, we're telling Him that we're not mature. We're telling Him that we're toddlers. We're completely self-centered people, that we have a lot of growing up to do and that we need His help. And so He will get the paddle out to help us along that road. But he does it not because he doesn't love us, but precisely because he does. And that's why he disciplined David. You see, we're beaten with a rod of our own making, but one which is administered for our own good. The third part of the psalm is the anguish exchanged, verses 12 and 13. So what do we do when our heart is full of distress of this flavor? When we've been thinking about how short our lives are and how fleeting our money is and how foolish our sin is. And when we've been broken by the discipline of God, we simply need to come to Him in prayer. We need to exchange our anguish for His understanding. As we sang about this morning, we need to trade in our limited perspective on life for God's deep, flowing, eternal wisdom. And as we do that, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, David says. As we do that, as we pour out our souls to God, He will bring comfort and relief, not perhaps by changing our circumstances, but by giving us His perspective on what's going on so that we can begin to live life as we should. Yet even in this prayer, His soul has not yet come to a complete place of peace. And you may wonder why it ends so strangely. 
He says, God, I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. He says, I've been so hurt by you. You've been so harsh with me that I, I feel like I'm a stranger in your house. And then he says in 13, just look away from me and let me smile once more before I die. How ironic that the very God to whom he turns for comfort is the God that he says, look away from me because he can't bear another stroke of discipline from God's hand. And you might wonder, does David not know about heaven and what's coming after? Well, he does. He just couldn't get there in his anguish right now. He says in Psalm 16, God, I know that you won't abandon my soul to the grave. You'll take me out of it. And he says at the end of Psalm 17, I know that when awake, when I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. He knew that when it was all over, he was going to be in the presence of God. But right now he is so caught up in this struggle that he can't see the end. And God understands how we talk when we're in pain. So what do we make of this psalm for our lives today? How should we respond to its lessons? It's interesting to me that David doesn't give many solutions in this psalm to the very questions that he's raised. Part of that is due to the fact that he doesn't have any answers himself yet. He's in the middle of it. And he can't rise above it to see what's going on. He's just pouring his heart out to God. But part of it is that now with the fuller revelation of the New Testament, we have a deeper understanding of these issues and a greater responsibility to live our lives accordingly. And so, as we apply this text now, we're going to dip into the New Testament to help us understand what to do about these three points. And so I have three points of application for us today. First, because life is fragile and time is so short, we need to evaluate our schedules. We need to evaluate our use of time. Moses said in Psalm 90, Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. All right, we need another kid's moment here. How many days do you think I've lived? And any guesses? A few hundred maybe? A few thousand? Well, I got an email just a few weeks ago from Tim Davis, our office manager, congratulating me on the 20,000th day of my existence on earth. So if you have your calculator and your phone handy, you can figure out how old I am. But that's not what Moses is saying. He's not saying, teach me to number that now I've lived 20,030 days. He's saying, teach me to understand how I use the days that you give me, however many or few they may be. And God says through Paul in Ephesians 5, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So, how are you using your time? Look at the rat race of your life and see where the time is going. Now, there may be some exceptions to this with illness and perhaps various other things. But I think in general, if our lives simply revolve around meeting the needs of us and our family, there's a problem. God has made us for much more than that. There must be some space in our schedule for service, for doing something for others, for sharing the joy that we found in Jesus so that others can enjoy that joy as well. And how is God going to tell at the end of our lives if we've done anything worthwhile or not? Well, he tells us very specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
On that day, he says, it will be made clear how we've used our time. And how is God going to do that? Well, on that day when we stand before God, that will not be a day for rationalizations or excuses. There's no debate. There's no rebuttal. God's simply going to take the bulk of our life, the work that we have produced, and you know what he's going to do with it? He's going to throw it in the fire. Because the fire is very objective. The fire tells you what's real and what's not. And he says, if your life has been built on wood and hay and stubble, it's going to be burned up. Now, you will escape, you will get into heaven, but just as when escaping the flames. But if your life has been built on and made out of gold and silver and precious stones, then he says, you will receive your reward. So every one of our lives and the choices we've made with our time is going to go through that refining and defining fire. So what does that look like for us? How do we build lives with gold and silver and precious stones? Well, it certainly involves fulfilling our responsibilities to our family, our responsibilities to be a witness for Christ in our neighborhoods and with our colleagues at work. And let me especially encourage mothers of young children. What a tremendous responsibility you've been given at this stage of life. Thank you for your work. It's hard and it seems to never end. But I think that even there, there needs to be something more than just the circle that revolves around your little life. I wonder, can you do more? You say, I don't have time. Well, that's where I want you to evaluate your schedule. And here's an easy way to do that. What things do you find time for? I can always find time to watch a game. This is my temptation. I could watch sports six hours a day and never get tired of it. My wife, two minutes, and she's ready to go shopping. (laughs) But what is it for you? What do you find to spend your time on? Is it TV? Is it video games? Is it movies? Is it Facebook? Yeah, you find time to do stuff that you really want to do, no matter how busy you are. And yet, you can't find time to read your Bible. You, you can't find time to pray and to come together with God's people to pray. You, you can't find time to join a small group and grow in community. See, your perspective and my perspective, if I think that way, is skewed. We need to evaluate our schedules and make sure that we have built into our lives. I'm not saying you can't have any fun, but there needs to be a balance. Yes, we need some recreation and some family time, but listen to these words from John Piper in his book, Don't waste your life, which I'd encourage you to read if you want to follow up to this sermon. He said, clean noses and quality family time is not life. Oh, how many lives are wasted by people who believe that the Christian life means simply avoiding badness and providing for the family. So there is no adultery, no stealing, no killing, no embezzlement, no fraud. Just lots of hard work during the day and lots of TV and PG-13 videos in the evening during quality family time. And lots of fun stuff on the weekend, woven around church mostly. This is life for millions of people. Wasted life. We were created for more. Far more. You see, at the end of the day, at the end of the month, at the end of the year, at the end of your life, what are you going to have to offer to God? And will it survive the fire of His testing? 
Well, if you would like to invest your life this summer in something significant, we have some great opportunities for you. And I'd encourage you after this service to go by the local outreach wall and and check out Whiz Kids, an opportunity to tutor inner city kids. Or the Spring Hill Day Camp that we need volunteers for as kids go down to that camp and enjoy that experience. Or visit, visit the fish ministry table. We have an exciting ministry to international students that you can easily be a part of here in Indianapolis and invest your life for the nations while you live right here. Stop by the fish table and find out what you need to do to sign up for that. Or go to the VBS table. We've had so many people register that we need more volunteers for VBS. Evaluate your schedule and make sure you're building into your schedule those things that are going to last for all of eternity. Secondly, because money is fleeting, we need to invest it wisely. Now, if the first thing you think about when you hear me say that is that you need a higher performing stock, you've missed the point completely. You see, because no matter how much money you earn on earth, it's all just Confederate money. If it doesn't sprout wings and fly away, in just a short time, it's going to be worth nothing at all. And so what do you need to do about it? Easy. You send it on ahead. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, do you remember that word, and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but... Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Invest, my friends, in the bank of heaven and earn dividends throughout all of eternity. Many of you are doing that. You're giving to church. You're giving to the mission expansion project. And thank you for all that you do. You're giving to missions. That's wise. You will never regret that money given. But if you're looking for more investment opportunities, we have some wonderful ones for you today. And I would encourage you to take a minute on your way out and go by the tables by the global outreach wall. In Nicaragua, we have a school where you can sponsor K-12 students to get a Christian education. We have 70 more kids that need sponsorships this summer. We have a school in Kiev, Ukraine, that we partner with, where students get a college degree in the Bible. And you can sponsor a student and help them get that so that they can be a a useful and effective Christian in their country. And thirdly, we have a, a program in Kenya where you can help an African student get a master's degree training in, in theological education and be used by God to, to proclaim the news of the kingdom in the continent of Africa. Stop by one of those tables and talk to the folks that are there and consider further investments in the bank of heaven. And then finally, because sin is foolish and God's discipline is hard, we need to repent from our sin. Do we understand that some of the challenges in our lives may be the disciplining hand of the Lord? It might be a financial struggle where God has been consuming our wealth like a moth. It might be something physical like David describes in Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Now, not every hardship in life is God's discipline. There are other reasons, as Job taught. But for the child of God, it might be God's disciplining hand. And until you recognize it, you're not ready to learn from it. Some of us today in this room are caught in the trap of some habitual sin. And Satan has us 
tackled by the legs and he's bringing us down. And God's word today is, your life is too short to waste in sin. That's going nowhere. God has so much more for you in store. If you will ask him to deliver me from all my transgressions, he would be delighted in the power of Christ to free you from those sins if you will turn from them. God will forgive and heal and give victory over sin. That's why you need to sign up for Live 12 and learn in community what it means to mortify, to put to death the deeds of the flesh so that you can live a life that is pleasing to God and becoming more like Christ each day. My friends, do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Instead, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. He has injured us, but He will bind up our wounds. Blessed is He whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. God will deliver us from our transgressions, and then He will give us wisdom to invest our lives and our money in a wise way. The psalmist said, Show me the measure of my days. And John Piper in his book wrote, The thought of coming to my old age and saying through tears, I've wasted it, I've wasted it, was a fearful and horrible thought to me. Come away, my friends, and invest your life for eternity. A little poem that affected my life deeply when I was in high school. I leave with you this morning. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. If you have some things that are stirring in your soul and would like to speak to somebody or have someone pray for you, there will be a team at the front afterwards that would love to talk with you and pray with you. Just come on up and chat with us. If you don't know Jesus today and would like to make something significant of your life by becoming a child of God, we'd love to tell you how to do that today. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you loved us enough to pull us out of the mire and the muck and that today through your word you've shed some wisdom on our path. Lord, help us to consider how short our lives are and to use them for things that truly matter. Take us, burn us up, use us that your name might be proclaimed in our city and in our nation and around the world. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen.